Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This morning we'll read verses 18 to 23 of Matthew 1. We'll focus our attention on verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin reading verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Great triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you asking your blessing. We pray that you would help us this morning as your word has been opened and read, as your word is now preached. Help us to hear, as we've already prayed, not the words of a man, but the voice of Christ Jesus, our Savior, our intercessor, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray this morning for the salvation of sinners, for the sanctification of saints, and for the advancement of your kingdom. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. In the famous Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare placed these now familiar words in the mouth of Juliet Capulet. Having met Romeo Montague earlier, that evening she stands on her balcony and says, what is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. She is suggesting that the reality of a thing does not change based on what we call that thing. She speaks of a rose, but her underlying meaning is that people are who they are regardless of their name. And this is at the heart of that tragic play as we see that family feud unfold in Romeo and Juliet's love and then in their death. Oh, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's been out for a while, so you should know. We know that names may be important to us. Some have particular significance. Perhaps we have a name, perhaps you have a name that is a family name. Somebody asked about Henry. Henry's not here yet, right? He's <laughs> Mama is ready. <laughs> Mama is ready. 
And, uh, and I thought about Henry as I was writing this. I thought about several of you as I was writing this. Uh, family names are important to have those names that, that, uh, that remind us of those who we love. Maybe we're named after someone. Sometimes we're named after family. Sometimes people are named after uh, famous people. I thought about Austin. And I thought about, uh, we know a guy named Houston. And we, we think of the famous Texans who people are named after. Um, names are important. But we understand that a name does not define a person. I mean, we can, we can think of some of the names in this very room and we can illustrate this. When you meet Mr. Miller, we don't assume that he operates a mill. And when we talk to Mr. Smith, we don't ask him about his hammer and tongs and his forge. Though, though the name would imply blacksmith, but we, we, we know the name doesn't, doesn't define who you are. We have this morning a house full of Jacobs, and I told you guys I was going to call you out in the sermon. This is it. We have a house full of Jacobs, but, but church, when we talk to Jacob, uh, any one of them, we don't, we don't suppose that their name makes them into a poser or a schemer or a liar or a cheat, do we? That, that is what the name means. The name doesn't make a person what the name means. Uh, and I felt bad for you, Jacob. So I also wanted to add, just to encourage you a little bit, your name also means may God protect. So, so you've got that going for you. Uh, my name is Todd. That is like a fox. And while if you're a child of the 70s, you may think being foxy is a good thing, but, but I always think of what Jesus said, you go and tell that fox. Yeah, I, yeah. so that's, sometimes we have names that mean things, but, but our names don't define who we are. So we ask today with Juliet, what's in a name? And particularly, we find a name in verse 21 of our text, and we, the virgin will bring forth the son, and you will call his name Jesus. What's in a name? So rightly, someone has said the study of this name. This name study is the most important of its kind. I believe that to be the case. It would be easy for us to get caught up in this name study and spend way too long here. But, but I think it's important for us to get a little background and then I don't want to be here too terribly long. You shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus was not unique. It wasn't even an uncommon name. Now, the name Jesus has never really been uh, common for English speakers, but it has been very popular among other language groups. We all probably know a Hispanic or Latino man named Jesus. It's the same name. Uh, this name can be traced far back into the Old Testament. The name Jesus comes from an ancient Greek name, Jesus. And that name has its roots in the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yeshua. From there we get the name because it kind of sounds Yeshua. It kind of sounds like Joshua. That's where we get the name Joshua from. So, so the name Jesus and the name Joshua from the Old Testament are connected and, and related. We forget that Joshua from the Old Testament was originally named Hosea. A different Hosea from the Hosea Hosea that, that 
Joshua was originally named Hosea until Moses changed his name. Now, when we see names changed, especially in scripture, that name change is usually more significant because at that point, you're not just naming a baby that you don't know what they will be, but you're naming someone who is what they will be. And the name Joshua was given to this man. The name means God delivers or God saves. What a name. What a name. The name certainly was fitting for the Joshua of the Old Testament. He led the Israelites through many dangers, through many snares to the promised land. The, the name fit. It was a good name for him. I wonder if this name was not so significant that many a Jewish father would name his son Joshua or Jesus or some form of that name, hoping to inspire the boy to grow up into the name. That's what you do, right? I mean, that's what we hope for John Owen. <laughs> that's, that's what we hope for him. That's what we hope for many, that you grow into the name that you were given. Some naming their son by this name would want to reflect on the Joshua of the Old Testament. Uh, some would, would want to make Joshua a hero for their son. Others would want to give them the hope that is found in the meaning of the name God saves. There's hope in that name. But Joseph in our text was not given the opportunity to pick a name for the child that was to be born to Mary. This name was assigned. This name was given from above. The angel commanded, you shall call his name Jesus. But we know this about angels. Angels don't do anything of their own accord. They do what they are told. They do what they are commanded. So we know that this name comes from God himself. Mary's baby was to be named Jesus because God said it would be so. Now, I don't have this in my sermon, but let me just tell you, when, when Joshua was named Joshua in the Old Testament, God knew that he would be pointing to this baby born of the virgin who would be named Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. From here, I've taken the sermon title, Jesus Saves His People. Jesus saves his people. God the Father sent him to save. His name means that he will save. And Jesus saves his people. This is one of the most common and beloved cries of Christianity. Jesus saves. We sing it, we say it, we print it on t-shirts and coffee mugs, Jesus saves. But today, I would like for us to remember that this common cry, Jesus saves, is a sort of Christianese. It's part of the jargon of Christianity, and therefore it may be misunderstood or not understood by those who hear it. And I believe it may not be fully understood by many who say it. It may not be fully understood by many who claim to be saved. What does this mean, Jesus saves? What is it to be saved? In order for us to understand this better, we need to ask some questions. We need to ask, we'll ask one question this morning. Jesus saves from what? 
Jesus saves, but from what? Verse 21 of our text begins to help us to answer this question. Save from what? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The first part of the answer comes to us. You can tell I didn't have to work very hard for this first part. Uh, the, the, the answer comes to us in this first part. Jesus saves his people from their sins. Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, every single person born into the human race in the ordinary way that people are conceived and born are sinners. We inherit sin from our fathers. It comes through the bloodline of daddy and grandpa and great grandpa. Sin is not a condition that we catch by experience or by exposure. Many people have a misunderstanding about sin in that they think it's something that we that we catch this condition by exposure to it. We don't we don't live in the world. And then when we're around sin for a little while, we pick up the habit and we start sinning ourselves. If that were the case, we could say we're only sinners because we sin. We could say we're only sinners. And by the way, Christians, we say that sometimes. We're only sinners because we sin. We're only liars because we lie. We're only cheaters because we cheat. But that is not the case. Rather, we get the condition much earlier than that. It doesn't come after exposure to sin. When we start practicing sin, we get this sinful condition much earlier. King David put it this way. In sin, I was conceived. Sin is passed down from the very moment of conception. Now, I want you to think about that a minute. I don't know that we think about this. To be a sinner, you don't even have to be born. We are sinners from conception. To be a sinner, you don't even have to be born. We are conceived as sinners and then we are born as sinners and then we live as sinners and then what do we do? We sin. Uh, the condition causes the doing. Now, I've, I've said it this way. I know some of you really like my silly illustrations, but I, I've said it this way. Barking and tail wagging does not make my pet a dog. She is a dog, therefore she barks and wags her tail. Barking and tail wagging doesn't make her what she is. What she is produces the outcome, produces the action, produces the behavior. And in the same way, sinning doesn't produce sinners. Sinners produce sin. It's who we are. We inherited from Adam all the way down. Every person born of natural generation in that ordinary way of conception, we're conceived and then born as sinners. And, and the nature of being a sinner is that sin permeates every part of us. We are sinners in our minds. We are sinners in our will. We are sinners in our emotions. We are sinners in every action that proceeds from mind, will, and emotion. 
No, no person is slight sin. No person is a little, a little bit of a sinner. I mean, you may be a short sinner, you may be a small sinner, but you're not a little bit of a sinner. Every person is totally eaten up with the condition of sinfulness. Now, we're not saying when we say that, I'm, I'm not saying that every person is as sinful as we can be. By the grace of God, we find that there is restraint in sin, and it is God's grace. Some would say, well, I've never killed anyone. See, there's restraint. But, but Jesus said, if you hate it in your heart, then you're a murderer. Some might say, well, I've never committed adultery, praise God. That's good, there is restraint. But Jesus said, and we're about to get to that in our Sunday school, and Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, if you, if you think about it, you're guilty of the sin. And, and sin is... It's in every one of us, and we're totally eaten up with it. It's prevalent. Some have recognized the problem of sin and even recognized the need to be rid of sin, and they have decided, what I'll do is I'll try to tip the scales back in my favor. I, I think if I do enough good, then that will outweigh the sin. Some have this idea. But the problem is that our sin weighs far more than the good things we do. Our sin weighs far more than we think. And it weighs far more than the good things that we do. If we're really honest, we have to admit our good things are really not that good. Our good things are really not that good. We have mixed motives. That is when we don't have bad motives. We have mixed motives. The Bible tells us that the best things we do, when we compare it to the standard of holiness, it's filthy and dirty. The best things that we do. And even if you could do a thing, a good thing, and do it perfectly, even if you could do a work that was good and perfect and pure and right, that would not undo the sinful thing you've already done. That wouldn't undo sin. At the end of the day, when you do a thing that is good, if you could do a thing that is good and perfect and right and pure, at the end of the day, you've only done what you owed God. If you could do that, and, and we can't, but if you could, all it would do is keep you even. It wouldn't eliminate this problem of sin. Sin remains. It certainly would not, as some falsely teach, put God in your debt. So sin remains. And, and any, anything that we do that we say, well, I'm going to do a good thing, anything that we do that is imperfect, that's all of it. It only adds to the, to the weight of sinfulness to the whole of sinfulness. Sin leaves every one of us spiritually bankrupt. Bankrupt, flat broke, spiritually. And we can understand this when we think about bankruptcy financially. Someone who is financially bankrupt cannot pay their own way to get out of bankruptcy. That's why they're bankrupt to begin with. 
they don't have the wherewithal to pay. So it is with those who are spiritually bankrupt. We cannot pay our own price to get us out of spiritual bankruptcy. We are unable to pay. If we will be saved from our sinful and bankrupt condition, we need another one to do it. We need one who is spiritually rich, but God being rich in mercy. We need one who is spiritually rich to come and save us from our sin. This, this is the message of Jesus Christ. He saves his people from sin. He saves his people from their sin. This is why we, this is why we celebrate this time of year. This is why he came as a baby in a manger. This is why he lived a perfect life. This is why he went to the cruel cross of Calvary and gave his life. It's to save us from sin. This is what churches are all about. This is what churches should be all about. If they're not all about that, they're not true churches. Jesus saves us from sin. This is what churches are all about, but this is also a big reason why churches are not continually true. This is why there's room to seek other people. Jesus saves from sin. It's the main message of the church. It's the underlying truth behind everything that we do and say, behind all that we practice and teach and preach. But while the church is saying, Jesus saves from sin, so many people in this world are saying, I don't need saved. I don't need saved. They live as a sinner, and, and, and I've never really heard anybody deny that they're a sinner. They live as a sinner. Maybe they compare themselves to other sinners to see how they measure up. Most people determine they don't need a Savior. Either they think they'll just enjoy life as it comes, and sin won't cost them in the end. Or perhaps they think, well, maybe there is a God, but surely he'll grade on a curve. Surely my failing F grade in the end will be like a C minus. Because everybody sins. But thinking like that is, this is what the Bible would call it. So it's what I'll call it too. It's foolish thinking. When we reason like that, we fail to remember that sin is only enjoyable. Did you know the Bible says sin is enjoyable? It says it's enjoyable, but only for a brief time. Only for a short time. Then in the end, it's enjoyable for a brief time, but in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you're trying to do the good things and rely on your goodness to get you to heaven, all who are relying on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Well, I keep most of them. No, all the things. You have to be perfect. This is, the, this is the curse of sin. And this curse of sin is not easily removed. 
The curse of sin certainly cannot be removed by some feeble efforts that we produce, which are in the end mixed with sin. Sin is, sin is awful. Sin ruins lives. How many tragic endings have we seen? We've lived a little while and, and maybe not, maybe some of you young folks have seen some tragic endings from lives lived in the sin of drunkenness. How many of us have seen lives ruined in, in the sin of adultery? Now those are those are big ones, right? But but we can say we've seen lives ruined because of the sin of selfishness. We could go on and on. We could we could speak about specific sins that that bring people to their knees, that that bring their lives to be shipwrecked and families destroyed and children hurt, people devastated, all because of sin. The curse of sin, the issue of sin, the matter of sin, though it ruins lives, it's far worse than that. If, if sometimes I hear Christians say this, I, I have a, a son or a daughter or a loved one, I, I have someone who, they're, they're a drunkard, I just wish they'd stop drinking. I just wish they'd stop that lifestyle. If, if if your loved one would stop living in drunkenness and debauchery, if they cleaned up their life, would that be good enough? No, the problem of sin would still be a problem. The problem of sin is still a problem. We have this inherited sin nature, and that brings about the practice of sin. But then there's the curse of sin the debt of sin that is owed, the wrath of God that is due for sin. The Bible says this, the wages of sin. When you sin, you earn wages and the wages of your sin is death. And that debt, that sin debt is owed not to another human. That, that sin debt did you know the sin debt is not owed to Satan? Nor to a demon? That, that's not, the debt is owed to God who is holy, holy, holy. Friends, it's not the wrath of Satan that you need to be concerned with. It's the wrath of God. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Sin's wages are payable to the God and creator of all things. But Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And he saves us from the nature, from the practice, and from the wrath of God due for sin. Saying Jesus saves or Jesus can save you or, or we might, we might King James it, you shall be saved. This is not a modern invention. This is not a new thing. When the hymn was written, Jesus saves, Jesus saved, that wasn't the first time that was being 
We read these sayings in the Bible. Perhaps one of the most common is the account of the Philippian jailer. When, when God had freed Paul and Silas from jail, they were singing in jail, singing hymns and praying. When God freed them by a great earthquake, it meant that all the other prisoners were also loose. They were also free. And the jailer comes and he sees the door open and he immediately begins the process, whatever it was, to take his own life. Because he knew the, the punishment that would be upon him would be the punishment that was on every, every individual prisoner who had escaped. He knew I would rather take my own life than live with that kind of punishment. But Paul stops him by shouting, do not harm yourself. We are all here. No, when we talk about miracles of the Bible, we, we don't often talk about this one. I think that's a miracle of the Bible. I think that this presence of every single prisoner is a work of God. And it may have been a saving or a justifying work. The jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now we know in the beginning of that, of that text, it says that the other prisoners were listening as they prayed. Uh, and surely in praying, there was scripture involved. It, prayer should always include scripture. And the other prisoners were listening as they prayed, as they sang hymns. And I, I think, I think the jailer must have also been listening because of the way he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? It, it seems a strange question unless he had heard them talking about being saved. And the preachers answered the question. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house. Then the scripture said they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to his household. So I'm sure that, that whatever he meant when he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Whatever his idea of saved was at that moment, by the end of the night, he had a more full understanding of what it is to be saved by Jesus Christ. And friends, I hope that we have a little better understanding of what it means to be saved, of what we are saved from. We are saved from sin. We are saved from the wrath of God. So let's not get it confused. Tomorrow, when we think about the birth of a Savior, the point is not that we see a sweet baby in a manger. That's not the point. I like babies. I, I don't know. If you don't have grandbabies, I don't think you understand what it is to say, I, man, I love, I love babies. As wonderful as babies are, a baby might save you, but it's going to be brief. They might save you from a moment of boredom. All these new mothers, you're getting ready for that, right? <laughs> no, no more boredom. A baby might allow you to escape for a moment from the cares of the world, but, but it's just a moment. It's just brief. And then it's gone. And, and that, that's not salvation. That's postponement. That, that's just 
a moment of reprieve. Babies don't say. Jesus came as a baby, but he came to save. He came to really save. He came to save by living a perfect life and then going to the cross where he paid the price that we owe. He paid the price that we owe. He died in the place of everyone who would believe in him. Not only did he die a human death, because he did die just like humans die. He died a real human death. But more significantly in his death than the human death was the fact that the wrath of God for our sin was meted out to him as he hung there on that cross. He came to save. And he saves. So brothers and sisters, when December 25th comes around, don't look to gifts to satisfy. We're getting back to Ecclesiastes show. It's all vanity. Enjoy it for a moment, but just know this is, this is a puff and it's gone. Gifts can't satisfy. But the gift of Jesus Christ as our Savior that satisfies our greatest need. That satisfies everything that as lost people, we didn't even know we wanted. We didn't even know we needed. Jesus satisfies. And tomorrow, we don't look to an evergreen tree. We don't, we don't find hope there. We look to a different kind of tree. We look to the tree on Calvary. The cruel cross, the old rugged cross that stood on Golgotha's hill where Jesus was crucified, where he paid the penalty, where he satisfied the wrath of God. We look to our Savior who hung there because he was cursed on our behalf. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And now we're no longer Slaves, no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves under the curse of sin, under the wrath of sin, because all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for every one of us who believe in him, you are sons of God, you are heirs through Christ Jesus. Lost friend. The most important question you can ask is the question the Philippian jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? The virgin gave birth to a babe in Bethlehem's manger and they named him Jesus for he will save his people. He has saved his people from their sins. Lost friend, won't you turn away from your sin today? Won't you come to Jesus Christ by faith Believing in his death, 
payment for your sin. Believing in his life for the righteousness that you need to stand before God. He saves from sins and he saves from the wrath of God. Christians, let us think about Jesus. Let's think about what his name means. Let us ponder Jesus saves. God saves. From what? He saves from sin. And he saves from the wrath of God. Christians, let us rejoice in God our Savior. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That we might become children of God. Now we read verse 21, and I want to read it now in the past tense. Because we're on this side of Bethlehem, we're on this side of the cross, and we're on this side of the empty tomb. She brought forth a son, and they called his name Jesus, and he saved his people from their sins. God, we thank you for Jesus. And though this preacher has focused on the fact that the the birth of our Savior is not the main focus. God, we thank you for the birth. We thank you specifically for the virgin birth. We thank you that, that through this virgin birth, through this incarnation, that Jesus is both God and man, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. That he was born without sin, without a sin nature. And though he was tempted, just like Adam was tempted, we thank you that he did not sin, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling the whole of the law. And he did so not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of everyone who would believe on him. We thank you for this beautiful, wonderful salvation that we have through Jesus, our Savior. Because God saves. We pray in His name.